Hey everybody, it's Dr. Jamie and the Fit and Fabulous podcast is a safe space for all kinds of discussion and today's sponsor is Bush. They're all about self-love, a wellness brand that's changing the conversation around self-pleasure. Bush's self-love movement is all about empowering people to love their bodies and the amazing things that it can do by breaking the stigma around self-pleasure. After all, self-pleasure is the next big thing in beauty. You guys just watch. It's great for your health, it's great for your skin, and it's great for your mood. I'd love to introduce to you the favorite vibrator from Bush called the Empress 2. The Empress 2 is a vacuum clitoral stimulator. It's ergonomic. It has a cute pink design. It's got curves that fit all the right places. It's got powerful vacuum technology. It's 100% waterproof, perfect for bubble bath time. There's 40 pleasure combinations, something that works for every body. Magnet, USB charging. There's no fussing around with batteries. It's discreet in all the ways. Your business stays your business with a quiet design and discreet shipping. So you guys embrace self-love by adding the Empress 2 to your cart right now. You can use the code FITFAB. That's F-I-T-F-A-B for an exclusive 60% discount on the Empress 2. And please visit the link in the episode notes right now where you'll also find the discount code. Thank you to today's sponsor, Bush. to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie. Welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. I just want to tell you guys how much I love you. Seriously, every time you leave reviews, you share all these podcasts with your friends, you subscribe to the channel, you're really helping us reach around the world and spread these amazing messages of health and strength and mental mindset and just being freaking fit and fabulous. So I cannot wait to introduce you guys to today's guest because she's just a total badass power woman. And I just felt like when I woke up today to record this podcast, do you ever feel like you just see somebody? I I haven't even met this person in, in physical real life, but that's the power of social media. But do you ever just see somebody and you're like, okay, we would totally hang out. We would be friends. And that's how I feel about this gal. Dr. Stephanie Estima, you guys, is on today's Fit and Fabulous podcast. She's a doctor of chiropractic medicine. She has a special interest though in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and female physiology. So if that doesn't speak my language, (laughs) I don't know what does, but you guys, she's been featured on Thrive Global. Uh, The Huffington Post has over 3.5 million article reads on medium.com. She has helped Thousands of women lose weight, regulate hormones, get off medications with her signature program called the Estima Diet. You can hear her every week on her own podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie. And she's really changing the conversation around health, fitness, sex, intimacy, longevity, parenting, mindset, and pursuing excellence, which that's why you guys, I just know we would be best friends. (laughs) Her life's passion mission is blending modern science with ancient wisdom to empower women's health and healing. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Man, well, let me just reflect that back to you as well. You are such a badass and I am so honored to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so what did I miss in that intro? Who is Dr. Stephanie Estima? Tell us about yourself. Ah, well, I would say that, um, you know, the, that's sort of my, you know, official bio. I would say that I'm pretty quirky as well. I, f- I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> the jokes that I make, you see, I'll laugh at my own jokes. Hey, if people can't laugh, get out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a super nerd and I spent 
um, you know, maybe we'll get into this. Maybe uh, we won't today, but I've spent a lot of, uh, time really focusing on my intellectual life and really understanding things like things that you mentioned, the metabolism, why it's different for women, why we're not little men, um, why, you know, for example, the ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, sometimes we have to nuance it for women. Um, and starting to kind of come into my own groove, if you will, in terms of also embracing, uh, my femininity, my sensuality, my sexuality, and just kind of like being great, just putting it out there as well. So kind of the balance of, I spent much of my professional life and I, I'm sure you can relate to this, like just going through professional training, you are always in your masculine, right? It's like test, right. perform boards, get A's, you know, all the things, Rank, um, and now, Exactly. Exactly. Like that achieve, like getting the, getting the letters behind your name and really sacrificing rest and recovery and listening to what my own body signals, um, needed. And I'm really sort of, I feel like I'm really coming into a really great balance of being both very strong and soft when I need to at the same time. Amazing. So was there something personal in your life that kind of got you there or was this just the natural progression of building your intellectual pyramid per se, or. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think that part of it is what we, what I talked about in uh, the Betty body and sharing my own story around some of the struggles of being a woman. Like I always struggled with my menstrual cycle. It was always such a like thorn in my side and it always seemed easier to just sort of numb it and forget about it uh, with medication and really just taking the time to, um, you know, sit in sometimes the discomfort around why this was happening, you know, and, and the, um, acknowledgement that sometimes I was pushing myself too hard past and beyond the finite, uh, capacity of my matter. So, um, really learning what that limit was. And I I'm always about growth. Like, you know, you and I, I think I agree like sisters from another mister. I feel like we could talk for many hours and jam on many subjects and we will today. Um, I also, what I, what I've also found to be very important is learning what my own personal limits are. You know, when I first started, when I was a, a little, you know, baby new doctor, I wanted to throw absolutely everything at my patients. I was like, I can help you and I can help with your headaches and I can help with your back stuff and I can help with, and, um, you know, patients would kind of slowly back out of the door and like I would never see them again. Um, so really learning, uh, what my personal capacity is for expansion and growth and also learning how to attune that, uh, to other people who may not be at the same place as me. You know, I think any good coach, any good doctor, uh, will say that we always want to try and meet our patients where they are. Yeah. Uh, and I think in order to do that, you also have to learn how to meet yourself, uh, where you are and learn about your own capacity, your own limitations. And that pro- like that being productive and always being on is not, not the way, uh, it's just, it's a recipe for burnout, which we're seeing with physicians sort of, you know, across the board now, but learning where learning our own capacity and honoring the rest and recovery, because that's, and, and, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that's one of the most productive things you can do is to actually give yourself permission to rest. Yeah. I mean, I think that most health practitioners careers are built around these personal experiences and people that know my story know I was struggling with my health. I had pre-diabetes. That's how I actually got into the world of ketogenic therapies on a super personal level. And, you know, being an obstetrician and gynecologist, you have these, these memorable patients, these memorable cases that they do, they change the way that you practice medicine and these types of things and, and things that happen in our own life. But 
the, the one thing I really want to applaud you and to really highlight in this podcast is that there's not a lot of health practitioners these days that are walking the walk <laughs> instead of talking the talk because you know, it's just these small little consistent actions that really lead to optimal health. And I just feel like as a healer, as whether you're a doctor of chiropractic medicine, or you're a dentist, or you're a massage therapist, or you're an OBGYN, I just think that if you're not in your best physical, mental space, how are you supposed to heal other people? Like healed people heal, <laughs> right? broken people break people down. And I just right. think that with where Western medicine is right now, it definitely has a time and place. Um, I, I love kind of living almost in the gray zone of being able to use my integrative medicine and Western medicine and figure out what's really best for, you know, each individual patient. But I just think as a practitioner, like it has to start with you and creating that resiliency. That's been, people are always like, how do you do everything you do? And I think you just hit the nail, you know, on the head that it's creating a space of setting the boundaries, setting the limits, knowing where you can push yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and where you shouldn't and creating the most resilient you know, self, because we're a biological creature and small amounts of stress are awesome, but, but large chronic stress obviously isn't. So I totally applaud you that for that. Okay. So what, uh, what Dr. Stephanie Esma was talking about is her book called the Betty body. And she sent it to me and I've just been diving into it ever since I got it. And I'm loving it so much, you guys, and you have a program, right. That goes along with this book. Yeah, it's called the Estima Diet. So it's basically a female-focused uh, ketogenic diet. Uh, so we have sort of two main phases to it. One is a therapeutic intervention of nutritional ketosis, where we are restricting carbohydrates. Um, you know, and we can talk about stats in terms of metabolically unhealthy uh, Americans, and I'll extend it to North Americans. Uh, it's about eighty-eight percent of uh, the population is metabolically unhealthy. So this is a way for us to um, promote. Uh, insulin sensitivity to help heal some of that uh, metabolic derangement that happens from just as a you know byproduct of modern living. And then the second part of it is more of a female-focused cyclical approach to keto. Um, I am um, there's a, there's more and more doctors. Uh, thankfully, uh, when I first started in uh, kind of in the keto world, that there was like Mark Sisson, Dom D'Agostino, and maybe one other person, <laughs> maybe Stephen Finney yeah. or something. Um, and they were all and like I've had Dom on my podcast. Absolutely love him. He's been an absolute you know a mentor to me from afar in many ways. But again like a man. Right. So I would watch him do these seven day fasts and then go and like deadlift 500 pounds. And I was right. like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm strong. Like I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to go and fast for seven days and I'm going to, you know, keep working out. And of course, completely kiboshed my menstrual cycle. It was like wonky for months afterwards. I'm like, I wonder why that's happening. Like, is this, there's something wrong with me. Right. Um, but you know, thank like to kind of bring it back to the point. Um, I think that keto needs to be done long-term uh, for women a little differently. So I don't think carbs are the enemy. Once you've healed metabolic uh, dysfunction, I think that we need it. And we can talk about why it's important for thyroid function and mood and serotonin, you know, all these different um, pathways and, um, and systems in the body. So there's more of a cyclical approach that pairs up with a woman's menstrual cycle if she's in her reproductive years. And if she's in menopause, it's actually the same program, but instead of anchoring her, you know, she doesn't have a bleed week anymore. She doesn't have a pre-ovulatory week anymore. She doesn't have a luteal phase anymore. So we will anchor it to phases of the moon. 
which may be a little bit woo, um, but I actually uh, have a lot of reverence for um, being connected to some the rhythm and the cadence of uh, of Mother Earth, and um, and and you know the the moon has a big you know we all know that the moon affects the tides and it affects. Yeah, I mean everything in the world is a cycle, right? It's like right. Right. yeah, we I live in Nebraska, so we have four seasons. It's kind of actually the one thing I like about Nebraska. In the middle of the winter, I'm always like, why do I live here again? <laughs> But then spring comes. You're like natural cryotherapy. That's why I like summer, fall. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And there is, it's, that's the hard space that we both live in is people will say that we're quacks or that it's like woo woo, or there's like no evidence. And I think that's the cool thing about therapeutic ketosis is we're really starting to see more studies come out. Um, I'm obviously a huge fan of it. Can you touch on why you don't think people need to be in ketosis all the time? Cause I totally agree with that statement. Yeah, sure. I think for uh, women, um, when we are, well, first I'll say that anything aggressive over the long term, women are exquisitely sensitive to changes in their environment. And this is all because our, especially if you're in your reproductive years, your body is always trying to optimize for fertility, for your reproductive capacity, irrespective of whether or not you want a baby. That's what innately, what your biology is always trying to optimize for. So thinking about let's say aggressive fasting or, you know, aggressive carbohydrate restriction over a long Delta or caloric restriction, your, the mitochondria, like your ovaries are going to know what's up. And if you are, and you, you mentioned this before, and I'll just kind of double click on it. Cause I think it's really important, you know, acute stress, like that hormetic stress that you mentioned before, very, very important for adaptation and growth and expansion. But when that acute hormetic stressor turns into chronic low-grade stress. This is when we start to see labs going wonky and we start to see this decline in health. So very important for women in particular to be thinking about how we can optimize for our hormones, because we have, in, in addition to, you know, men and women, a lot of the same systems that work, but we have obviously a reproductive cycle that's distinct from our male counterparts. We have right. a 28 or so call it 29, you know, the mean is 29 day menstrual cycle where we have ebbs and flows in the hormonal, like the changes in our hormonal milieu. So we are literally different hormonally week to week to week over the course of a month. Men don't have that. They have more of a 24 hour cadence, like more of a 24 hour cycle with their testosterone and their estrogen. Whereas we have like a 29 day cycle. So when we are aggressively carbohydrate restricting for a long time, which you might, which you find a lot, which I I've seen, I'm sure you see this a lot with women that are like, I've been in keto for the past three years. I'm like, Oh no, we have, we have to, we have to pull this back. And, and it's usually I've been in keto for three years and I've been following a 1200 calorie diet. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to talk about some, uh, how we're going to yeah, feel. People can take disordered eating from their, their normal life and still be ketogenic, or they can take all their bad habits from their regular diet and still make ketogenic versions of it. So, right. Right. Absolutely. That's where a lot of the bad rap comes, you know? And so, uh, I love, I love everything you're saying. Keep going. Yeah. So I think for, for women, what we want, like the, the bottom line here that we want to sort of double click underline highlight is that we are exquisitely sensitive to changes in our environment, both internal and external. Mm-hmm. And even when we bring this down to like a cellular level, and this is how I like to explain it, uh, to patients, when we look at the 
concentration of mitochondria, for example, in the ovary, it's like a hundred thousand mitochondrial, uh, uh, mitochondrial, uh, mitochondria, pardon me, in the oocyte, in the ovary. If you compare that, let's say to the heart, also a very important organ, there's like 5,000 mitochondria per myocyte. If we look at the liver, 2,000 mitochondria per hepatocyte. So you can like, there's a hundred thousand, right? A hierarchy of organs. Yes. Can we think about, yeah. So think about your, your ovaries are basically like your eyes inside your body. They are constantly sensing the environment. And if you are stressed, and by stress, that might be chronic low-grade stress through you know, carbohydrate restriction, caloric restriction, aggressive fasting, over-exercising, not enough sleep, et cetera. Your, your ovaries are going to say, you know what? This is probably not a good month to ovulate. She's pro- she's stressed right now. So let's just kind of shut this, let's shut this puppy down and we'll we'll try again next month. She this is like she's got too much on her plate right now. And this is where we see, and I'm sure you see this a lot in your practice, where we see this dysregulated, unpredictable menstrual cycle. And then even just the symptomatic presentation of premenstrual syndrome, pro-inflammatory, uh, uh, symptoms. Like, you know, I talk about in the book, how I used to have like angry breasts, like my breasts were angry at me every month, you know, we're like a t-shirt, like I'm wearing a t-shirt right now would be just uncomfortable. Like I'd have to kind of wear like a loose blouse. So like there was no, um, no pressure or my rings wouldn't fit the same, the same way. Like I would, I felt like I was holding a lot of water and my GI, you know, my bowel movements, my digestive capacity was, um, just these wild swings. Right. Exactly. So I think for, uh, for women, what we want to be thinking about is more of a gentle approach. Like I don't think health should be punitive and it shouldn't be difficult. You know, you want to always challenge yourself, but in, in the sort of landscape of a menstrual cycle in that 30, you know, 29 or 30 days, there are times when you can really push yourself usually in the follicular phase. Mm -hmm. And then there's times where we want to coast, right? We still want to be you know, at maintenance, right. But we, we don't want to be pushing ourselves because that's usually the time when we're a bit more inflamed or there's a tendency at least to be more inflamed during that time. Yeah. I love it. So for anybody listening that doesn't understand that a woman's cycle, two weeks of follicular phase, two weeks of luteal phase, follicular phase is more estrogen. Luteal phase is more progesterone. This is just like in a very overarching sense. So the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle with that estrogen, and I can tell you from personal experience, I feel great. My satiety is good. My blood sugars are stable. I can work really hard in the gym. My recovery is awesome around ovulation. You just feel like a total animal. Sex drive is up totally nature's (laughs) physiology, but dang luteal phase. Oh, and I make a lot. I said this on another podcast. I did some testing on myself and I make enough progesterone to, to, uh, probably keep five babies alive, but (laughs) but blood sugar dysregulation, you don't recover as well. Um, you do have more fat oxidation. Your metabolism does go up, but your hunger's up. It's just a lot harder. That's not the time to try to be pushing, you know, the gas pedal over and over. So, um, and I, people always ask, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this is like, they're like, should I change my diet? First of all, you have to be a regular ovulating menstruating woman. You can't be on birth control pills or something like that. Do you think people should change their approach follicular phase versus luteal phase, or just kind of be aware of it? I absolutely think that we should be changing it. And this is, um, based on the chain. And I talk about this in the book. I actually think that 
you know, first when we're just getting metabolically flexible, uh, I like to actually put people in ketosis for at least one cycle, but usually it's one to three cycles. So about three months. And we know that that's usually about the time where we can, um, you know, it's eight to 12 weeks for most people to become fat adapted. So three cycles sort of lines up with that. And then moving into that second phase of the estima diet where we're cycling or we're matching our, um, we're matching our foods and our, you know, macronutrient composition of the diet with the cycles of like week one, week two, week three. So I really do like to change things. So for example, and I'll uh, walk you through uh, what I talk about in the estima in the Betty body week one bleed week, right? We're on our period. This is, as you were mentioning, uh, this is the, the first two weeks, we call this the follicular phase estrogen, as you mentioned, uh, is dominant. The first couple of days, uh, on your bleed week, estrogen's pretty low. The only kind of hormone that's kind of kicking around is follicular stimulating hormone. She's sort of holding down the fort. Um, and then towards the end of week one and into week two is what you were mentioning, where we see this beautiful apical rise in estrogen. Um, and so in that first week, is a beautiful week. Like you were saying, my blood sugar is good. I can fast. I can push myself. I actually love that to be more of a ketogenic type of week where we're restricting, uh, our carbohydrates because we're just, you know, we're just more adapted to, we're more resilient that week to, you know, even caloric restriction, like fasting in week two, that pre ovulatory week before we ovulate, Estrogen, as we mentioned, reaches its apical rise. Testosterone, as you mentioned, I'm always like, I always joke that I find I'm like chasing my husband around the kitchen counter. Like, it's like, let's go. Like, I'm much more receptive to it. Um, this is a really great time um, from a nutritional perspective to really drive up protein. Um, and this is something I'm sure you see this a ton in your practice as well. For women, especially first we have to get rid of the narrative that if you lift weights, you're going to be bulky. I don't know why this still like I lift, I lift, I lift weights. I would like to be bulky. It's very effing difficult for a woman, any woman listening to try to get freaking huge. I dare you. (laughs) Without exogenous help, without exogenous supplementation, yeah, I right? Dare you. It's very difficult. So you're not going to get bulky. Um, so lift in that second week. I like to tell if we're talking about fitness, lift heavy weights. Um, because you have that testosterone peak, but there's two ways that we build muscle. One is in the gym and the other's in the kitchen. So if we can drive up protein and carbohydrates in this week, um, so I actually like to change, you know, I'll usually do keto, like a 70, 20, 10 composition where it's like 70% fat, mm-hmm. 20% protein, 10% carbohydrates. In the second week, I actually will change the composition to about 40, 40, 20. So we pull down the fat and double the protein and double the carbohydrates. And the reason for that, and this is so important for any woman, any age, but in particular, if you are in perimenopause and or menopause, um, you, as we age, we have a natural tendency. And I know I'm I'm singing to the choir here, but like, you know, for your listeners, we have a natural tendency to become more uh, resistant to growth. There's an anabolic resistance that sets in as we age through our forties, fifties and beyond, if you are not lifting weights regularly, and if you are not cycling your protein. So the protein increase that we're talking about is going to drive something called MPS or muscle protein synthesis, just like what the name suggests, we are synthesizing new muscle proteins. And of course, that's a, that's a beautiful, um, 
cycle, because as you are increasing your protein as your testosterone peaks and you're able to create more muscle, you will naturally have more testosterone, which is another thing that tends to decline right. naturally as we age. So the more muscle that you can put on in your forties and fifties, you know, the better off you're going to be in terms of like, you know, let's, let's just be honest, you're going to look better, but also just from a metabolic and a hormonal perspective, you're also going to naturally be increasing your own levels of testosterone, which, you know, help us feel confident and help us feel and make big decisions and kind of put our best foot forward. Like testosterone is an important hormone for women. We often, you know, phenotypically will ascribe estrogen to the, you know, that's the female hormone, but women have more testosterone, you know, then we do estrogen and, and testosterone is really, really important, not just for our musculoskeletal system, for bone density and for muscle mass, but for our brain, our cognition, for our mood, you know, and you mentioned libido and sexual, you know, and even just like our orgasms, right? Like when we're orgasming, the, the contraction of the wall is mediated in part by like the, the maintenance of the wall is mediated in part, the vaginal wall is mediated in part by testosterone. So, um, I love to increase testosterone in week two and carbohydrates because, um, that insulin response. So this is where I, this is where women really differ. We want carbohydrates. I talked about protein increasing MPS. Well, carbohydrates also work to help degradation of muscle protein. So they help to keep the stuff that you've already built. And this is why women should not be in ketosis forever, because if you're always carbohydrate restricting and you're always calorically restricting every time you get into the gym and you're trying to build muscle and you're not feeding your body carbohydrates, which you, your muscles need, um, then you're, you're robbing, you know, your, your body is going to, as you get within that 10 or 15 pounds of your ideal body weight, it's going to start sacrificing your muscle proteins because it's going to be like, well, we're not getting carbs. Like we're not getting carbs in the, in our exogenous, you know, like in our dietary uh, composition. So let's just use this, this functional tissue that's costing us so much, so much energy to, to uphold. Um, so that's week one and two, and then week three and four are like a repetition of it. Because when we look at the hormonal, uh, ebbs and flows after, you know, estrogen peaks at about call it day 10, it's there for about 50 hours or so. And then there's like a sharp drop off of estrogen. And then we sort of see that similar pattern as we did in week one, where it's low estrogen in the beginning. And then it comes up again, same mm -hmm. thing happens in week three, low estrogen. And then it comes up and there's like a steady state of estrogen for the, you know, until, until, um, it's time for your period again. So I like to return to a ketogenic diet in week three. I also like to add in for my women, particularly who have tried keto in the past and couldn't deal with the cravings and, or tend to have that PMS, like that pro-inflammatory state mm -hmm. IBS and, or the PMS symptoms. I like to add in resistant starches here. So resistant starches. As I was you, just about to ask when you say you're going from 70, 20, 10 to a 40, 40, 20, talk about like what kind of carbohydrates we're adding. Cause this isn't the free ticket to eat. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the cookies, the chips and the crackers and the Haagen-Dazs. Yeah. So I would say, uh, the carb like vegetables, 
I know this may be shocking, but vegetables are carbohydrates. So we like my, I'm a really big fan of optimizing estrogen uh, metabolism. So I really like, especially for my women who tend to run estrogen dominant, that pro-inflammatory state in the luteal phase. So green leafy vegetables, really big fan of things like broccoli and, uh, you know, broccoli sprouts, Brussels sprouts, things like that. Of course, you always want to make sure, I know there's some discussion around these goitrogens and people having poor, um, like a poor response to them. So you can steam them, you can saute them, uh, don't have them raw. If you find there's a lot of GI right. distress and maybe you have some panels, like you you've looked at your thyroid and there's some, maybe there's some dysregulation there. Like you need to also do that. You know, you need to personalize it for you based on, you know, your labs, but generally when we're having foods that contain, uh, something called sulforaphane. So it's like the stuff that, you know, smells like rotten eggs, right? It's like the sulfur containing, uh, foods, what you're doing is you're actually helping to optimize estrogen metabolism. So it's helping to move estrogen down, uh, what we would call the protective pathway, um, which is going to help, you know, with the angry breasts and the, and the water retention and the mood stuff that can happen for many women in that luteal phase. So adding in the resistant starches is really important in that sec in that third week, pardon me. Uh, also really helpful for if you're someone who has, um, like a, a hypothyroid or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or any type of autoimmune condition, truly, uh, resistant starches are really important because what I've found, uh, clinically, and you, you know, I'd love to, uh, know if this is a similar pattern that you've observed, uh, usually my autoimmune women have uh, gut hyper, like hyperpermeability in the gut co-infections in the gut. They have overgrowth of sort of these like opportunistic bacteria. So when we're, when we're feeding the colonocytes, cause resistant starches, your body doesn't really use, like it's just basically a food source for the cells in the large intestine. They produce um, short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which help to patch up the leaky gut stuff. Uh, it also helps with sleep, which is a lot of, a lot of women complain of dysregulated sleep in the last two weeks, particularly that fourth week and helps with cravings. So that's kind of the, the sort of secret sauce, if you will, to the esteemed diet is adding the resistant starches. Cause I've had so many women, you know, and if you're listening now and you're like, oh, I tried keto, it didn't work for me. Like I kind of lasted three weeks and all I wanted was like pizzas and bagels and whatever the resistant starches actually really help to quell some of those cravings. Cause the reason why you're having those insane cravings is there's a distress signal from your microbiome. It's like, she has been restricting carbs for too long. I need carbs. Like I'm going to move her towards the bagel shop down the road, or I'm going to, I'm going to direct her to have some pizza. So when you, when you consume the resistant starches, you're feeding the microbiome and the microbiome can say, ah, oh, okay, we get, we're getting our food. We're fine. We don't have to send this distress signal to the brain. Um, and then moving into that fourth week, um, we return back to that higher protein, uh, higher carbohydrate compositions, so that 40, 40, 20. And the other thing I'll add is I also like to increase calories here. So let's say you've been having, I don't know, uh, 1600 calories, 1700 calories during the, during the month, you'll increase that by 10 or 20%, because as you mentioned, uh, correctly, that our metabolic uh, um, output goes up because you're all your body's doing, whether or not you want to be pregnant is trying to fluff up, you know, it's trying to build out this endometrial lining, this five-star hotel essentially for, uh, you know, the recipient, you know, to receive a fertilized egg. So all of your nutrients, glucose, amino acids, free fatty acids, 
glutathione, vitamin D, selenium, zinc, everything's being thrown into the endometrial lining. So you yourself also need to be increasing your consumption of foods to help with, um, because you're not getting it like your endometrial lining is getting it. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. Women's bodies are so cool. Um, you mentioned about adding the resistant starches. And I think that there's controversy out there about the necessity of fiber for health. Mm. Yes. And, you know, the theories really are that when you're in therapeutic ketosis, you're making beta hydroxy butyrate, butyrate, uh, which is short chain fatty acids or or butyrates. And so, you know, there's really a thought uh, out there that fiber is really not necessary because the benefits of fiber is butyrate. And if you're in therapeutic ketosis, you don't really need fiber. Some would argue, you know, that, you know, you need it for the microbiome. There's early tiny little studies out there. There was like one on people with the carnivore diet showing that they make just as much butyrate. It's just a different type. What are your thoughts about that? Obviously with your estimate diet, you're cycling in and out. So it's kind of negative. Yeah. So you're not in ketosis the whole time. So that uh, I I've heard, I've, I've seen that. I, I would love to actually get Paul Saladino on um, my show to talk about this. Cause I know he talks a lot about like goitrogens and like he wears t-shirts. That's like kale is bull you know, like kale is, you know, garbage, right? Yeah. Um, kale is so, not your friend. Yeah. Kale is not your friend. And, and, and I would agree, you know, if you're only consuming these like raw vegetables all the time, it is absolutely going to be affecting your thyroid. We do want to be, we do want to be thinking about that. Well, so um, my question would be is like, why, why kale, Brussels sprouts and broccoli versus, um, something like some fruit or roots or even some rice? I think either, all of those are great. I usually prefer, I tend to move towards the green leafy vegetables to optimize for estrogen detoxification. And so I had mentioned, so um, what, yeah. yeah, it's just a sulforaphane containing, um, uh, like that compound really does help move uh, estrogen metabolism down more of the protective pathway. Um, so that's the, that's the justification for that. However, um, if you don't have an estrogen metabolism problem, if you know your, you know, if you've done a Dutch test, for example, and you know that approximately 70% of your, uh, estrogen is going down that two hydroxy estrogen pathway, then, you know, absolutely it can be peppers and it can be, you know, berries and fruit, and it can, it can be those things as well. Um, what I've often found is most women in particular come to me with some type of hormonal imbalance. It's I, it's either hyper androgenic, like there's hyper, uh, androgenic environments. So they're more, they're on the more PCOS type of spectrum. Um, or they are their estrogen metabolism, uh, vis-a-vis their diet, their lifestyle is suboptimal. So we will put them in this, we will use these green leafy vegetables as a tool. Um, but certainly if you are having, um, you know, fiber, if you're, if have producing a BHB and you have enough, you know, fiber, like fiber is almost like, um, I don't want to call it the fourth macronutrient, but it does a lot of important things in the body. Like it bulks up the stool. It, it, it quells hunger. Uh, it quells your hunger, um, signals and helps to move the, uh, the stool. It attracts water to it. So it helps to soften the stool as it's sort of moving through the microbiome. If you are getting that from appropriate sources that are not green leafy vegetables, I'm fine with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's individual. I think there's some people that respond well to it and some people that don't. And what Dr. Estima was talking about with this estrogen metabolism for anybody listening that doesn't quite understand it, there's essentially three phases. So it goes through the liver. 
it gets secreted into the gut, has to get packaged up and then comes out in the urine and the feces. And if you're somebody that doesn't have proper um, phase in the liver, which is phase one, and this substance within cruciferous vegetables contains sulfurphane, which helps push it down that pathway, you may already be doing that. And she's saying, if you're already doing that, but you have to test to know that. And I guess, let me just, uh, let me throw out like a clinical idea. So a woman comes in, she seems to be having estrogen dominant symptoms. I check her peak estradiol level and it's like 497. I've seen some really high estrogen levels. And then we look at her Dutch testing we look at her gut testing. What's her beta glucuronidase doing in the, in the colon. And we figure out where the bathtub is clogged, like where the system is clogged up. And this would be an appropriate situation where you're like, okay, you know, let's either, uh, let's add more broccoli and Brussels sprouts, or let's work on this, you know, phase three issue with the beta glucuronidase. But if you're somebody that, you know, doesn't have estrogen symptoms and you're feeling good, you know, so that's why I always say be your own expert, you know, maybe try one thing one month and try it the next month and see how you feel. And I think that's where fiber falls. I find some people who have like a slow gut complex will just do horrible with extra fiber. And then some right. people do amazing with it. And the other thing to consider about fiber as well is of course, one of the things that it does is it binds up kind of sops up extra estrogen, right? So if you are someone who is in late perimenopause and or menopause, you don't want that extra estrogen being bind up and, and excreted, excreted through the feces. You want right. to actually conserve whatever you have. Especially so if you're that, not on HRT. <laughs> right, right. So in that case, we would say, well, we actually would like you on a lower fiber uh, diet. So we would want to move that away because that can actually make a woman who has low estrogen symptoms worse. Yeah. There's studies on plant-based vegan vegetarian diets that you can actually drive your estrogen to a level of infertility. Like yeah. there's higher rates of infertility with vegan vegetarian diets due to that exact effect that Dr. Essen was talking about. So, um, okay. Let's talk about mood a little bit gosh, anxiety, depression, it is like, it's so prevalent. I feel like every patient's got a little, a little touch of it. How does diet have an impact? Cause your background's kind of in this area. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's such an important uh, topic. And I think what we've seen in the last, I don't know how many months is it now? 2000 months since the <laughs> pandemic what started. Yeah. What like, why, where are we? Where are we? In the yeah, twilight what, zone. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, what we've seen is from the lockdowns, from the social distancing, which is an inappropriate term. Should we should not social distance, maybe uh, physical distance. And then even I have some thoughts on even that, but anyway, there's still not a lot of science for that. Yeah. Though. Still not a lot of science even for that. But if you're, you know, anyway, uh, another topic for maybe another time. Um, so what we've seen is this healthcare, this mental health crisis where we feel isolated uh, from each other. We feel like, you know, we've been taught, unfortunately in this pandemic that people are dirty and people are contagious. Um, so we're, you know, there's, you know, I've had some women that I've worked with that hadn't, haven't seen their parents in like one, two years. Um, and what we're seeing, of course, and unfortunately in our younger, uh, population. We're seeing more suicidality and more suicide attempts and more prescriptions. I think I read that there was like a 383% increase in scripts for yeah. uh, antidepressants in the, in from like, uh, March, 2020 to March, 2021. 
So this is a, this is really important. Uh, diet absolutely uh, will impact your mood. And specifically when we are having, uh, and this comes back to the gut microbiome in, in a way, when we're having a lot of processed foods, uh, when we're having a lot of sugary foods, you can sort of get this temporary, you know, a lot of people will reach to, I remember when the pandemic, when we were first locked down back in March, 2020, uh, you went to the grocery store and you couldn't find flour. Like everyone was baking, like it was like breads and pies and, you know, whatever you use flour for. So um, people were self-soothing with food, right? Like they felt like the world was coming to an end. So F my diet, I'm just going to go make some bread. And of course, what happens is when you are consuming, you know, more than let's call 30, like everyone has a bit of a different, um, uh, upper limit, but let's say for the general population, more than 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrates in any one sitting, you're going to have a huge, uh, increase in postprandial glucose. So after you eat your blood glucose is going to shoot up. And then uh, of course your pancreas has to deal with this mess now. Right. So the pancreas is like, all right, let's like send out the troops. Let's send out our insulin, right. To get this under control. Now, of course, what happens is if you've only been eating bread and processed foods and let's say emulsifiers, because a lot of processed foods have emulsifiers in them. What ingredients are emulsifiers that people should look for on the Oh gosh. There's so many names. I think the big one is soy lecithin, uh, is a really big one as well. Um, I don't have all the names off the top of my head, but I can certainly send them to you for the show notes. If it's Um, like another language, I mean, that's what's crazy is people just have no clue what they're putting in their body and marketing is very clever these days. (laughs) Well, you know, I call there's almost like a, they're like sneaky sugars or, you know, you have these like really sexy names like molasses and you're like, wow, that seems like it must natural be really agave, yes. like organic coconut <laughs> sugar. Yeah. You're like, well, it's organic, you know, so yeah. check box there. Yeah. <laughs> And what, of course, an emulsifier, if you're not familiar uh, to your listeners, you, you already know what an emulsifier is because you put laundry detergent in your, uh, in your washing machine, right? That's to you know get... what they use, do you know what they use for, uh, to emulsify liquid laundry detergent? What? I didn't know this until I was shopping. This is total sidebar, you guys, but you have to hear this story. I was shopping for a washing machine with my mother a number of years ago. And I don't know who's ever put their wash in with liquid laundry detergent and then let it sit accidentally multiple hours a day and you open it up and it has that like dirty water smell to it. Yeah. 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 It's like, and you moldy. think, Oh, like my washer's not clean. Mm. It's because liquid laundry detergent, they emulsify it with animal fat. And, um, which I have no problem eating animal fat, but I don't necessarily need it like sitting on my clothes. And so right. I, right. since that day, I only use powdered and I only use it. Like, I think my powder laundry detergent has like three ingredients. Um, but it's the same thing. They do the That's same crazy. thing for food. Yeah. yeah. So like break down the fat so that you can. Yeah, exactly. And if you ever, if you've ever done like, you know, your high school experiment, if you put oil in water, of course, you know that they don't mix the emulsifier allows them to mix. So when you have emulsifiers and even like on, even like keto bars, you know, keto and protein bars, lots of emulsifiers or else the bar itself would kind of crumble. It wouldn't be able to hold its shape. This alters the microbiome. What ends up happening is the receptors, um, tend to like in, um, 
in the lining of the, uh, of the intestinal lining, they will actually retreat further and further and further. So your satiety, like your, uh, your feeling of fullness actually over time, if you're eating the same protein bar or the same keto bar or the same yeah. processed, whatever, uh, over time you feel less and less full. So you'll, you'll eat the thing and you're like, gosh, like, I feel like I need a something else. Like I need a little snack or something. So these are really important because of course that's going to impact your mood. It's going to impact your sleep. So what I really prefer and the brain we know uh, will always run on some level of glucose. You can never be totally in the brain, at least um, running completely on ketone bodies. However, uh, what a lot of people report, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is when they are in a state of ketosis or they're timing their nutrients such that they eat their fats and their protein first, and then they eat their carbohydrates last, that the fats, of course, and the proteins will empty out first. And then the brain is going to be able to use uh you know, ketone bodies, for example, as its primary source, we have less reactive oxygen species, less oxidative damage that happens when the brain is using ketones as its primary fuel source, which is going to, of course, impact your cognition, your clarity of thought, your ability to formulate sentences. You will remember why you've walked into the room, you know, like that's the one thing that my perimenopausal women are like, I walk into a room and I have no idea why I walked in here. So that type of cognition, that sort of mental clarity and sharpness is going to, um, be augmented when you are in a state of therapeutic or nutritional, uh, ketosis. So it is really important when we're thinking about mental health. Um, of course there's other, there's other, um, you know, modalities that we can talk about like meditation and setting boundaries. We sort of touched on that, but in terms of a nutritional approach, fat and protein, but in particular fat. And if you can, you know, pair the fat with like kind of a restricted carbohydrate, uh, and you're getting yourself into that nutritional ketosis and you have that metabolic flexibility to be able to, you know, vacillate between being glycolytic and uh, lipolytic, your brain is going to be much healthier as a result of it. And of course, you know, there's other, there's other things like BDNF is, is upregulated. Yeah. Which is, I was um, just about to, I was just about to highlight that this is the one area where I really really think therapeutic ketosis, which means actually in a state of ketosis, I think for the vast majority of us, if we don't have a chronic health condition, you know, uh, once you've repaired your metabolic problems, you don't have to, we've talked, we've said this, you don't have to be in ketosis all the time. Yeah. For people who have anxiety, depression, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, mild cognitive repair of uh, mild cognitive dementia of aging, these are people that sometimes do benefit from longer periods of ketosis because the brain, the mitochondria in the brain essentially have, have lost the ability to use glucose efficiently and effectively. And not only do ketones provide an alternative fuel source for these patients, but they act as a cellular signaling molecule. So just, just Dr. Estima just said BDNF, it's like miracle growth of the brain. It can actually help with uh, neuroplasticity and, and neurogenesis. And there's a whole host. I've done lots of social media posts on this, but there are the keto, the keto diet isn't just about fat loss, right? Right. Cellular signaling and therapeutic reasons why sometimes having the presence of beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood could be advantageous. I, uh, if you haven't already had Dr. Dale Bredesen on your podcast, I would love to make an introduction for you because he's been on the, and he is just specializes in Alzheimer's and the prevention of it. And he talks about a ketogenic diet. And when he first, you know, I'm just sort of thinking of his story. Like when he first was talking about using keto in Alzheimer's, like all of his peers were like, you 
you've like, you're a quack, like you're crazy. You know, this is like a, you know, a neurologist. So I think that you and him would have like a fabulous, uh, conversation, but he, you're, what you're saying reminds me of, yeah. of him. And he talks about, uh, these amyloid plaque proteins. Uh, so if you're having, uh, you know, if you're eating more of a ketogenic style diet or carnivore style diet, what you're doing is you're telling the APP, you're cleaving it at a certain, uh, you know, a certain, uh, site on the, um, on the structure that is not going to create, uh, some of these, uh, plaques, like these beta plaques and these tau tangles that we see in, uh, in that classic presentation of Alzheimer's. Yeah. I have not had him on. I would love to, um, I did have Dr. Mary Newport on who is a neonatologist whose husband passed away of Alzheimer's. And for anybody that hasn't listened to that episode, you have somebody with Alzheimer's in your life, go find it because she's written a couple books. She actually has a brand new one coming out, I think this year, but, um, really, really amazing lady who has kind of shared her personal story. And she too was one of the, you know, she really was advocating for her husband and these scientists were like, Oh no, just take this pill. And it a lot of times makes them worse, makes them die faster. So that's unfortunate. And type three, we're calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes now, and it's becoming an epidemic, especially among women, women are more, more likely to get it. So both of our audiences, I think would, would appreciate that hearing more about that. Um, talk to me about, uh, when people are in phase one, of the estimate diet, do you recommend glucose testing, ketone testing, knowing if they're in ketosis or not? You know, if it was like unicorns and sparkles and rainbows, I do like a full everything. So I would get like a full lipid panel. I'd get a thyroid panel. Um, I would want to look at their leptin numbers, HbA1c, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, you know, ferritin level. Like I'd want, I want to, I want the whole gamut. Uh, if that, and usually those are, you know, you go to your, you know, your primary and you can ask for most of those things are uh, available. There's a couple of qualifiers that I would have for the lipid, um, panel, which I'm sure, uh, you get, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if your, uh, primary healthcare provider is just looking at, um, total cholesterol and HDL cholesterol, and then some sort of estimation of LDL, uh, he's, he or she is doing it wrong. So we want to be looking, uh, we want to maybe do a, a deeper exploration of, um, of our lipids. Maybe we want to get, um, I, you know, LP little a is something that I, uh, like to look at. Um, I also, there's so many HCRP. So for anybody listening, what we're saying is the difference between a standard lipid panel, which typically has total cholesterol, HDL triglycerides, and then a calculated LDL versus a a more, uh, advanced it's either called advanced lipid panel, cardiometabolic panel, Boston heart panel, NMR lipid panel, depending on which lab you're using, it's called something different, but it actually looks at particle size of your LDLs, your HDLs. It's looking at ApoB, ApoA, LP little a HSCRP. A lot of these will have those other markers on there. And we're finding that it's not just, you know, and this would be a whole, I'm, I'm trying to find <laughs> experts in this area to have on the, cause there was a brand new study that just came out looking at people with carnivore and these lean mass hyper responders. But literally as a gynecologist, these are the patients I get in my clinic. They're like, my fasting glucose is normal. My fasting insulin is normal. All the things are normal except my LDL and my doctor's freaking out. And she's telling me I need to stop the way I'm eating. And I feel amazing. And I don't want to do that. Right. So, um, 
you have to look at other things and we're finding out that it's not context LDL that drives atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So yes, context is very important. And that's why, you know, if I had my way, everyone would have sort of this, um, this like before picture, let's say, uh, in, in terms of laboratory medicine and, and their lab values. And then while they're starting that phase one, I do want them to achieve ketosis. So I'm, um, you know, a lot of people say, what does that even mean? Um, Dr. Stephen uh, Finney has defined it as 0.5 millimoles per liter. So if you can get to 0.5 millimoles per liter, uh, whether that's on urine or you're doing finger, you're doing blood or uh, you're doing breath, um, all of those track relatively well with each other, assuming that you're hydrated. So that's sort of the little asterisk that I'll put in there. If you're dehydrated and you're doing a urine test, it's going to be skewed. So we want to make sure that you're hydrated, take the test at the same time, usually in the morning when you first have your first void. Um, but yeah, I like people to get into at least, uh, that mild level of ketosis one to 1.5, I think is great. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would have them testing, uh, throughout. And then at the end of, uh, in the Estima diet, because it's sort of like a do it yourself, we have quizzes in there that allow that you take in the beginning. So it measures things like your waist to hip ratio, which is obviously a very good longevity predictor. We know that the hourglass figure for women, uh, is a longevity, like the, the, the smaller your waist is relative to your hips, usually the longer you're going to live it's an uh, easy, cheap, free test. Exactly. So if <laughs> you don't want to do the whole lab stuff, like do your WHR, um, there's some quizzes, there are subjective quizzes that help to, uh, give you an understanding of your, like your microbiome function, uh, whether you are a sugar burner or a fat burner based on cravings and how long yeah. you can go in between meals and things like that. And then at the end of every cycle, so at the end of every one month, I like you to redo those tests. So redo your measurements, redo your quizzes to see how you're progressing. Mm-hmm. And then that will determine whether or not you will move into cycling. So usually I'll keep people in that therapeutic state of ketosis until they've either lost the weight and, or they're plateauing, uh, and, or they've resolved some of their original reasons for coming into that, uh, to coming into keto in the first place. Yeah. Another reason the waist to hip is, is such a good, easy, quick, free thing is because as women go through menopause, we see an increase in visceral adipose tissue deposition. So VAT visceral adipose tissue, which is that fat around your organs, which is exactly what that test is kind of assessing is, uh, there should be a specific ratio or some I do DEXA scans in one of our locations here and that's it's called the Android to gynoid ratio. I always call it like the apple to pear ratio, that hourglass right. figure that we're kind of talking about is actually a marker of health. So obviously genetically we have some, you know, predisposition to where we store our fat and things like that, but you should never, uh, your waist should never be expanding. Right. Right. And, you know, to your point around that visceral adipose tissue accumulation, the, the wider that your waist becomes, you know, usually that's an indication, as you mentioned, that we're accruing fat on the liver, on the pancreas, on, you know, on the organs that shouldn't be there. So that ectopic fat uh, distribution is just like no bueno, (laughs) you know, it's like not good. It's not good for women. So we always want to, um, you know, building that sort of hourglass figure. I mean, of course you can do that in the gym, but you can also achieve that in, uh, uh, through, uh, you know, nutritional choices as well. Yeah. That just made me think of something when you were talking earlier about muscle and the importance of muscle and longevity, your, your lean body mass, your muscle and your bones. I think a lot of people think of that as this like inert substance, like, uh, but it's, every cell in our body is metabolic. So the muscle is metabolic. I've been doing some posting on myokines, which are these chemical things that are secreted from muscle. Um, same with fat, fat is just not this inert blubbery substance that sits there. It actually sends chemical messengers 
all over the body. They all talk to each other. And so visceral fat in particular tends to be very inflammatory. Um, brown fat, which is your most metabolically active fat. It's a good type of fat to have. Babies have tons of brown fat. Ketosis actually helps stimulate thermogenesis and brown fat, brown fat activation. So um, fat isn't just, it's not just like styrofoam sitting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. And you can like having the four seasons where you live. I also have four seasons. You can also increase that through, like I try to go outside irrespective of the weather. So even when it's winter, I try to go outside and have a little shot of, you know, have, I have a uh, like a little shot of espresso in the morning, but I'll do it in like a tank. I, if, I know if, for those of you that can't see me, I'm in a tank top right now. So I'll sit outside in the winter, uh, with my, and I'll like, I'll do it until I start like kind of shivering and then I'll come back in and I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is activate my bed. Yeah. Let's okay. Let's shift from diet and talk about other, other things that people, cause your book talks about a lot of these different things. Okay. So sunlight and cold therapy, yes. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Sunlight is so cool. And it's, um, it's one of the things that I've sort of become like really nerded out on because again, it's like kind of a free tool available to most people, unless you live, you know, as you know, far North where you just have, you know, the Northern lights and you, you know, you have like two hours of sunlight a day, but for the most like 90% of the population or or 98 or so percent of the population, we have sunlight, uh, in the morning. And if you're able to get out in the morning. So like within an hour or two of waking a couple of really cool things happen from a metabolic perspective. So of course the, that when the sun is at sort of like a low solar angle, so it's kind of still low in the sky, it's going to, it has a ton of blue light, ton of green light, some other wavelengths and, you know, blue light sort of has a sort of gotten like a bad rap. Like it's like, we have to have all the blue light blocking glasses on all the time. And it's not entirely true. You need to have blue light activation in the morning because what happens is there's an area in the brain, uh, it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Sounds like supercalifragilistic, but anyway, supercalifragilistic, <laughs> SCN. Yeah. SCN. This is sort of the master clock in the body. And when it's activated visa or via the, uh, retinal activation, these retinal ganglionic cells kind of go back to the brain. Your this, this nucleus will say, Oh my gosh, it's time to wake up. So it's going to send a signal to all of your other clocks, like your liver, like your gut, like all your heart, all these different areas. And it's going to start revving things up. So your metabolism starts revving up, you start to wake up. And then there's other things that are happening in coordination with that, like cortisol, like your, your cortisol awakening, awakening response as well. So sunlight is an awesome way to help. If you're someone who has trouble sleeping and we see this with women in their perimenopausal years, they'll like wake up and they'll be like, I don't know, just one day I woke up. I couldn't sleep anymore. One of the things that's really beneficial and free and easy is to get outside early in the morning, activate that suprachiasmatic nucleus. And you'll find that your circadian rhythm will start to, uh, line up much better with the rise and fall or the, you know, the sunrise and, and sunset. So I love to counsel women to get that early morning light. If that's not possible, if you're like, I don't wake up that, or I'm in meetings or, you know, traveling or something. Um, the second best time to actually get outside is at sunset. So when we see lots of yellows and reds, uh, in the, in the skyline, it's beautiful and pink and purple and all of that. What that also does is towards the end. So I said at the beginning of the day, we want the blue light as the day goes on. Now we want to start minimizing in the evening 
you know, after sunset, we want to minimize blue light exposure. So it seems like, um, when we get sunset light, so the yellows and the oranges and the reds, um, that also will protect us. It has a prophylactic effect on any exposure to blue light that we may have. So, you know, the phone or the, you know, or the computer or the, you know, the television less so, but so if you're watching television late at night, being able to get outside is also now going to help send the signal like, okay, sun is setting. It's time to start winding everything down. So we can start having melatonin, you know, the secretion of melatonin coming up the adenosine, like that sort of melatonin adenosine, uh, dance, uh, that happens to help us drift off into a beautiful sleep. So sunlight's really cool. Um, cold therapy, you know, I mentioned, I go outside in a tank top, even in the dead of winter, um, uh, where, where I live. I think if you're not willing to, <laughs> if you're not willing to be as crazy as I, uh, what you can do instead is take a cold shower. So you can, you know, last call it 30 seconds of your shower, just turn off the heat, do it for 20 or 30 seconds. And just imagine that you're jumping into the lake you know, in the summer, like that's what I sort of, that's how I got myself over it. Cause I felt like a drowned, you know, cat when I first started doing it, I hated it. But I was like, well, this is, this kind of feels like, you know, when you jump off the dock, you know, you're jumping into the, into the water, it's like that first burst of cold. And then you're like, oh, I feel so refreshed. So, you know, that's really important for energy. And again, cognitive focus, mitochondrial biogenesis, which is just, it's just a fancy word for like making new mitochondria, which are your battery packs that make that make energy and make ATP. Um, so I love, I love cold therapy. Um, I love general movement. So we've been talking a little bit about weightlifting, like every woman should be lifting heavy weights, but I also think just from a lifestyle perspective, uh, and maybe this is a more comment in, in sort of like North American or Western society is that we're so obsessed with the classes, you know, it's like, I got to do my, you know, my Peloton such and such class, or I got to do my yoga or whatever. And those are all great, right? Not poo-pooing that lots of cardiopulmonary benefits that you're going to get from that. However, what most people do is they do a workout in the morning or at some point, and then they sit for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, I really am a huge fan of generalized non-specific movement. So what I'm talking about here, I know you've talked about this because I'm, I follow you on Instagram is this non-exercise activity thermogenesis, this generalized, like the walking, I know you're always take the stairs, right? You yes, you're like girl. always take the stairs. <laughs> that generalized movement is so important for our longevity, vitality, mood, sleep, circadian rhythm, all the things. So I'm actually right now, I know you can't see it, but I'm standing on a treadmill. Um, so when I'm working, uh, I, you know, on a day, you know, where I'm working at my computer, I'll probably rack up somewhere between 12 to 15,000 steps. And 85% of that comes from my treadmill desk because I am, you know, unfortunately, you know, just by, you know, modern life, I'm like, I'm with clients. I talk to my computer all day <laughs> on zoom all day yeah. long. So uh, walking is really, really important. Yes. The resistance training. Yes. The cardio, if that's what you've chosen to do, but also like puttering around your kitchen, gardening, you know, rearranging furniture, you know, even like laundry, I find sometimes laundry is so therapeutic, just like in, and then you hang it and then you're folding it. And then, you know, so I, hate I, laundry. <laughs> I like, it's my only time I have young children that are always like, mommy, mommy, mommy. So for me, it's like when I'm doing laundry or when I'm washing the dishes, it's like yeah. literally the only time no one talks to me. So it's, it's my little, you know, it's my time for, it's like my time to get lost in my thoughts without being interrupted. I love it. I totally love it. Um, on that same note, 
being a mom, having kids, what is some advice to a woman out there who just doesn't feel great, no energy, but she's working full time and she's got little kids. How does a woman like this get going? How do you get to a place where, what do they do? How do you do it? It's such, it's such a great question. All the time. It's like the million dollar question. Yeah. And it's like, how do you eat an elephant? You know, it's like one bite at a time. It's like one little thing at a time. So first I think it's important if you are a woman who has, you know, two or more kids or even one kid at home or even no kids, and you have a career and you're trying, and you feel like you're being pulled on the left and pulled on the right and pulled up here, you're at sort of maximum tension. The first thing I think that's important to do is just to give yourself a little bit of love, right? It's like, it's hard to be a woman today. Like we used to raise our children together, like you and I, and, you know, you know, it used to be like 50 years ago, 60 years ago that I could just pop over to your house for a cup of sugar or a cup of flour. And I I could drop off my kids or I'd pick up your kids from, you know, school and it'd all be good. And that doesn't really happen anymore where we are more isolated, right? We're in these, you know, homes and we don't necessarily know our, in these neighborhoods, we don't know our neighbors. We're not as involved in the community as it once was. So it can feel really isolating and hard. And there's probably a lot on her shoulders. So the first thing is just know how hard you're working and that you're worthy. And then building on that, once you know, I think once you get into the mindset of, um, feeling like you're worthy, you know, like just feeling like you're worth investing time in, you know, I'm working with a private uh, client right now. And this was like a really big breakthrough for her. It's like, oh yeah, like I'm worthy of investing in. So when I go to a restaurant, I want to speak up and say, I don't want you to put, Uh, I don't want you to put any oil, like just put the oil on the side because, you know, it's never really olive oil there. It's always like some sort of like fake, like omega six type of, you know, safflower oil or something that they're calling olive oil. So just know uh, that you're worthy of investing in that your body is, and this is how I view myself is that my body is a temple. And in the same way that I might go to a place of worship and show respect to, you know, that, that, that building. I would, I think that it's important to do the same for yourself, to have reverence for the temple, the home, uh, that you live in the house of goddess, if you will, or the house of God that you live in. And then, you know, if you were to go to a place of worship and pray and you, there would be ritual that you might do there. The same is true for your temple. There might be rituals that you can build out that honor uh, who you are. And again, to have that appreciation for what your body does for you, because your body made humans. Like, I know that that's such, but I remember when I first had my children, I would stare at my firstborn and I would like, I made you like, I made you like, I know that that's like grew the entire thing. I grew you. And I know that that's so silly, but I would just stare in awe and have so much, uh, like respect and awe is the word is I had so much awe for what I was able to create and know that you can still create, you still have that creative power. Maybe you're not creating a human, but you have the power to create the life and the body that you want. But in order to do that, don't compare yourself to Dr. Jamie. Dr. Jamie is an expert. She's been doing this for decades and she's had her own demons and struggles, like new levels, new devils that she's had to deal with. As I have, you have to compare yourself to who you were yesterday. 
that's the person that you're comparing yourself to. And, you know, how can you take one inch, how can you take one step forward today? So maybe instead of eating the whole, uh, meal, you eat 80% of it. You know, you eat, you eat the same meal that you you prepare the same stuff you've always had, but now you're eating 80% of that meal. Or maybe you start putting your fork down in between bites, or maybe you start chewing a little bit more get that cephalic phase of digestion, like that mechanical breakdown so that you're absorbing your food a little better. And then you can start adding on some of the other things that excite you. Maybe it's the resistance training. Maybe it's trying keto. Maybe it's, you know, doing some cryotherapy or just walking more. So like sometimes just walking, taking the stairs and like racking up eight to 10 K eight to 10,000 steps a day that, you know, in terms of mood and in terms of metabolism will work wonders. It's just staying consistent to the promise to yourself and not getting frustrated at how long it takes because it takes longer than you want. I promise. Yeah, I just had to tell a patient yesterday. I'm like the fastest way to get there is slowly. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I love that. I'm like, no, I'm just telling you right now, like it's, we're not going to get your A1C, you know, there overnight. Like this isn't mm-hmm. like, we're thinking the long game right now. But I think that what a lot of, cause I take care of first time mom, second time mom, third time mom. And I, and I see people, it's like, they've lost themselves. I think what women lose when they become a mother is they, they suddenly let go of who they were. And now they're like, I am mom. And I think it takes every single mother, a certain amount of time to say, no, I didn't have to give up who I was to become a mother. Yes. Now I am a mother and it's figuring out like how to mold those things into, you know, I thought like, well, it's like becoming a doctor, like, Oh, now I'm a doctor. Like I don't get to be this like strong, badass athlete. Right. Anymore. Yes. Like you don't have to keep taking off the hats and putting on new hats. Like you can wear all the hats, like figure out how to find that harmony in your life. But I think the one thing that women in particular do, and I think it's society that kind of pushes us in this kind of direction is that we constantly put everybody else in front of us. Yeah. And what I realized was my motto besides always take the stairs is pay yourself first. Mm. And if you can't, I was touching on this when I said like healers have to take care of themselves first. Like as a mom, if I don't get up and do my 5am workout and like eat the right foods and stuff, I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good mom to my kids. I'm depleted. I'm exhausted. I'm more irritable. I yell at them. But when I take care of myself and I physically and mentally feel so amazing, my pitcher's full. I can start filling other people's cups. I'm a better mom. I'm a better wife. I'm a better doctor, like all these things. And I think that that's, if there's just somebody listening that just feels so stuck and so, so, you know, broken, just say like, who am I? And then just work on every single day. Those tiny, tiny little, just like Dr. Estima was talking about those little tiny things just start to add up fastest way to get there is slowly and just be consistent, just figure out how to be consistent because the only thing that'll work is what you'll actually do. Yeah. And muscle takes a long time to build. And so do these habits, you know, it's not easy to just go from eating maybe a standard American diet to going all in like all carnivore. And then you're, you know, doing the weights four or five times a week, like just allow yourself give yourself that runway, that permission to take that long lead, right? Like we don't, we don't get into an airplane and then the airplane just takes off. There's a runway, right? It needs to like gather speed, overcome the stagnant inertia, the ground reactive forces. And in the same way, we are the same way. We need to overcome the inertia that is in our lives so that we can start to make, uh, to start making these changes and give yourself like 
let's call it like triple the amount of time that you originally budgeted for. You know, as you said, I love what you said. The fastest way to get there is slowly. I love that. That's so brilliant. Okay. So the, all at the end of all of my podcasts, we do something called the semen analysis. And so I always pull some study or something that's interesting to me. So I pulled this one and it's on diet and female sexual health. It was just published in 2020. And I think this is such a relevant topic for both of our followers, but female sexual dysfunction is so common. It's something that I hear about a lot in my clinic. And there's just this growing interest in the relationship between people's dietary habits and sexual function. Most of the research has been really focused on kind of like metabolic syndrome, obesity, um, and how these things exacerbate sexual dysfunction. So they did this comprehensive review, peer-reviewed publications on the topic. And um, if you guys are looking for this, it's literally called Diet and Female Sexual Health. It was in the Sexual Medicine Reviews, Volume 8, Issue 2. It was published in April of 2020. But basically, um, you know, they looked at how metabolic syndrome like Dr. Estimo was saying, 88% of America, right? Which half of those are women. Um, it negatively affects sexual function in women. And it's most pronounced in younger premenopausal women. Um, obesity detracts from uh, positive sexual health in relationships. Um, endothelial dysfunction. So you hear about men, right? Having uh, erectile dysfunction, but endothelium, which is literally like the lining of our blood vessels, um, it it is caused by excessive inflammation from metabolic syndrome, from obesity, and it can lead to poor blood flow to our organs, trouble with arousal, trouble with orgasm. Uh, same thing in the brain, women's sexual function, orgasm is, is you might feel it down here, but it's really, it's really an above the belt issue. Um, but these patients are really, really suffering. And they concluded that incorporation of healthy dietary patterns really can positively, positively influence female sexuality. Um, what are your thoughts about women and your program and just sexuality in general? Cause I think it's just something that doesn't get talked about. It's there's so much stigma. Yeah. I think that, um, we have to start talking more about orgasms and why women need to be, um, concerned with their sexual health, because it is part of what we were talking about before with their reproductive health, sexual health is wrapped up in that. Of course, you know, one of the things that happens when we orgasm is we have this like contraction, like 12 to 15 times a second of the, uh, the perennial muscles and inside the vaginal wall. So I think, um, when we think about nutritional considerations, if you're feeling inflamed and we've talked about how, when you're eating a pro-inflammatory, uh, you know, standard American diet, that's going to be affecting your mood. It's going to affect your gut microbiome. It's going to affect all of these things. You're not going to be, you're not going to be in the mood. So one of the things that I talk about in, uh, in the Betty body, I believe it's chapter six is, um, why we should be doubling down on sexual health as women. And I think for women, I know there's a difference here. There's like a bit of a, uh, sexual, uh, dimorphism here between men and women, the more orgasms you can have, the better. Like for men, you know, of course, after they orgasm, they have, you know, their testosterone drops off. There's more prolactin, et cetera. Um, for women, of course, what that does for us is in terms of our cognitive well-being. like if you look at a, at a, a brain sort of pre orgasm and then post orgasm post or like your brain looks like it's been lit up like a Christmas tree, like the prefrontal cortex, all of these areas, there's like the synaptic connectivity. Uh, and of course we have the love hormone, you know, the oxytocin that is secreted profusely, uh, post orgasm. So I think it's a really important topic. I think most women are not orgasming enough and I'll throw, uh, 
Amen. Yeah. And I think that, um, at a minimum, at a minimum, um, like twice a week should be where we are kind of aiming for. I would, you know, like optimally I'd say like every other day, if not every day, um, because I think that it does such profound things for our, and it, it sort of teaches you in a way, again, kind of having reverence for your body. I talk about this in the book, like you're, you know, the clitoris is the only, um, it is, it is designed for pleasure. It is not any part of reproduction. There's no reproductive function to the clitoris. It is just there for your pleasure. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing to honor in yourself to say, I have this nervous system or this nerve bundle, um, that is just designed to make me feel great. And as you said, you know, your orgasm, like sex starts in your brain. Um, so to be able to honor that on a regular basis, I think is not only better for your mood, for your metabolism, but it also teaches you what you like, because, you know, we all as women have kind of the same parts, but we like different types of stimulation. So it helps you understand your own body better. So you're more body literate, and then you're also able to, uh, explain to your partner, if you have one, what it is that you like as well, uh, which I think is also going to, you know, is going to lead to, uh, you know, healthy, you know, communication and relationship and an opportunity to deepen that, um, that relationship with your partner. So yes, I guess my, I guess my comment here is big fan. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. (laughs) There are studies, women who have more orgasms live longer. So it's an important part of your health. Um, okay. Tell people where do they find the Betty body? How do they join your groups? How do they work with you? Where do they find you? Yeah. So the Betty body is, you can find it on any online retailer. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the places that you might buy books, it's there. Uh, if you want to uh, learn more about the Estima diet, you just head over to estimadiet.com. And uh, if you want to, you know, if you're not ready quite to commit to that yet, you can find me on Instagram. And I also have a podcast, which you're going to be on. I'm so excited. Uh, it's called better with Dr. Stephanie. So we, you can listen to me. I have weekly, weekly shows there as well. Awesome. Dr. Estima, thank you for your time, your expertise, your knowledge. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you. It's been an honor. This was such a wonderful conversation. It's so lovely to have uh, an intelligent, high-level conversation with, uh, with other women who are doing great things. So thank you for putting this podcast together and for inviting me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Make sure you share this with another woman in your life that needs to hear this message. Um, It's really actually you guys that help us spread these messages all around the globe. So thank you guys. Have a wonderful day.